There we go. So what I want to do during this last time that we have together is um, actually a couple different things. Um, Drew, if it's okay, I wanted to leave a little bit of time at the end to maybe do some Q&A. Um, is that all right? Um, so that's, that's kind of the second thing that I want to do. The first thing that I want to do, though, is I want to get a little bit, like, practical. Um, last night and even this morning, um, we were talking about some concepts and some ideas. Some of you were digging it. Some of you were loving it. Some of you, it's like, I don't know, consciousness. What, that's just weird. Like, you know, so some of that stuff was, um, you know, some of you got more excited about that than others. But I want to I wanna shift our focus here this afternoon to talk very practically about ways that we could engage people with the gospel, ways that we can engage people with the gospel. And I'm actually just going to make kind of a bulleted list up here on the board for us, okay? Now, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on this, but I have learned some things just through my own life and through my own experience, some things that work, some things that definitely don't work, um, just some things for you to think about, about how do I engage my friends, my family, my fellow students, my coworkers, how do I engage them with the gospel, okay? And so here's the first thing that I want to talk through. There we go. Um, The first piece of advice that I would give you is, remember what I said this morning about apologetics, defending the gospel, it is always contextual, right? It's based on maybe not the arguments that you want to make, but the questions that a skeptic is wondering about. So it's contextual in that way. So the first piece of advice that I would give you is learn to listen for reasons beyond the reason. And here's where I want to open it up to you. Think this through. What are some of the reasons why people don't believe? Think kind of in broad categories. Don't give me, unless you want to, don't give me like specific things, but broad categories. What are some of the broad reasons why people don't believe? What do you think? Yeah. They don't want to change how they live. Okay. So I'm going to, yeah, I'm just going to make a list up here. So I'm, I'm going to use the word, hopefully everybody understands what I'm getting at here volitional reasons. Now, by volitional, all I mean by that is um, kind of a refusal to, like, I want to live life on my own terms, okay? I don't need anyone, I certainly don't need God or a religious person or a church telling me how I'm going to live my life. So a lot of people choose to re resist God and re resist Jesus for just purely volitional reasons. And this, this, this is one of the reasons why in the Gospels, Jesus says, there is a cost to discipleship. You remember hearing some of those passages? Jesus says, it costs a lot to follow me. It costs everything to follow me. Whoever wants to save his life must what? Must lose it. Uh, deny himself. Take up his cross daily. And I got news for you. That's not a popular message with a whole lot of people. A lot of people are willing to follow as long as it doesn't really cost them anything as long as it doesn't require any sorts of changes in their life or in their worldview. And Jesus doesn't bid us to follow him on those terms. 
Jesus is like, no, if you're going to follow me as Lord, what that means is you need to um, give up yourself to follow me. And so this, and so you're not, here's the thing, if I'm talking to a person who doesn't follow Jesus for volitional reasons, it's not going to have a lot of, an, a lot of impact on this person to go through intellectual reasons why they need to believe in Jesus. That's not, that's not why they disbelieve in Jesus. They disbelieve in Jesus for, for different reasons. So if I'm going to be effective with that person, I have to address that sort of volitional issue in their life um, if, if I'm going to make any headway. What are some other reasons why people don't believe? Oh, yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this word. Um, emotional or experiential reasons. You're absolutely right. Um, and this, this just breaks my heart. It really does. Uh, the number of people who have been repelled from God because they've been hurt. Um, sometimes because they've been hurt by the church. Sometimes they've been, because they've been hurt by Christians, they haven't been loved in the right way. Now, sometimes that hurt is misunderstood. You know, sometimes what that actually looks like is someone told them no. Um, someone told them, no, Jesus has something better for your life, and they interpreted that in a particular way. And, but again, the reason why they don't believe is because they've been wounded. I, I met a woman several years ago. Uh, her name is Wendy. She actually lives in Canada. I met her on Twitter. Okay, She's a very hostile atheist that I tried to befriend on Twitter. And, um, and we, we made, actually, we made some progress in our relationship. There was kind of a mutual respect there. Um, but what I always try to do when I'm talking to an atheist, if I can, if they'll let me, I try to gently and respectfully dig into their background a little bit. Um, because what I found is, it's overwhelmingly the case that you know, some people don't believe for intellectual reasons. They just have intellectual hang-ups with God. Um, actually, this is more true, believe it or not, of men. <laughs> uh, a lot of men don't believe in God because they think they're too smart for God. Okay? Um, a lot of women, I'm, ste- I'm speaking stereotypical, this isn't always the case. But a lot of women are kind of right here. They've been wounded. They've been hurt. And that was Wendy's story. Um, she was actually raped um, as, a, as a young woman. Uh, she wasn't a minor, but she was a younger woman. She was raped. And her church, uh, from her perspective, actually blamed her for that sexual assault. They, rather than supporting her, rather than loving her, uh, surrounding her with grace she felt they surrounded her with kind of judgment and criticism and condemnation. And that had such a dramatic effect on her that she became this very angry, very hostile person towards faith. Um, So emotional reasons are very real reasons. Sometimes the harm is from Christians in the church. Sometimes the harm, uh, anybody a psychology major in here? Nobody, okay. So sometimes this is... You're, you're studying counseling, so I'm sure this comes up a lot. Uh, sometimes this is what's called transference. I think I'm spelling that right. A person will transfer how they 
feel or their experience with one person or one entity and transfer that over to something else. And there's been a lot of studies that have been done on atheists, prominent atheists through the years, where they've, where they've actually discovered an overwhelming majority of them, almost 70% of them, had very rocky relationships with either domineering or absent fathers. Uh, some of the most well-known atheists that you know of, guys like Sigmund Freud, Charles Darwin, um, Friedrich Nietzsche, the story is very strikingly similar in so many of their lives. Victorian-era fathers that were very distant, in some case absent altogether, um, and so uh, there's actually a book that I read on this written by a former atheist turned Christian who studied this issue and found that there's probably this emotional transference going on where because of a broken relationship with an earthly father, the heavenly father has been rejected altogether. Um, so there are volitional reasons. There are emotional reasons. There are some people that reject God for intellectual reasons. Here's the point, though. If I'm, going to, uh, if I'm going to successfully engage a person with the gospel, I can't just simply assume that they're right here. I can't assume that I just have to give them enough intellectual arguments and I'll convince them and all of a sudden they'll be a Christian. That's not, in my experience, that's not how it works. In my experience, you almost have to engage in, there's this discipline um, that has gained a lot of traction lately called therapeutic apologetics. And what therapeutic apologetics is, is basically, let's talk about you. Let's talk about your life. Let's talk about the brokenness that has punctuated your life. Um, maybe let's talk about the brokenness that has been given to you by the church. Let's, let's put it all on the table. And let's, let's deal with this brokenness. And once we've dealt with the brokenness, then we can, then we can address more intellectual issues. But a person is never going to listen to you right here unless you've dealt with some of these other issues up here. Does that make sense? Um, I'm going to return back to this idea here in a second um, with one of my other points. So that's the first thing. Learn to listen um, for the reasons beyond the reason. And this could be something as basic as just asking a person, tell me your story. I mean, I'm happy to share my testimony with you, but can you share your testimony with me? Kind of your counter testimony. Like, how did you arrive where you're at? Do you have a history in the faith? Do you not have a history in the faith? What are the big issues for you? Um, what are the big issues that are a hindrance for you following Jesus? Uh, if we were to be a little bit more granular, these are big categories. What are some of the issues that keep people away from belief? Yeah. Sexual ethics. Yeah, sexual ethics is a big one. And it's not just LGBTQ. It's not. That's a big part of it. But it's, it's more broad than that. It's more along the lines of, why does the church care so much who I have sex with? Why do I have to be married uh, in order to have sex with someone? That doesn't make any sense. That's backward. That's dumb. It's controlling. It's manipulative. So 
Sexual ethics, that's a big topic, a topic that we don't have time uh, to really cover in this space today, but maybe Drew can set you straight on that at some point. Um, but I mean, that's right though, isn't it? A lot, a lot of people, like that's one of the big hindrances to the gospel is sexual ethics. So we're going to have to have that conversation. We're going to have to listen well, but we're also going to have to explain well, articulate well, what is a biblical sexual ethic and why, is, why does a biblical sexual ethic actually make sense? Um, wh- what's another issue? Suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Suffering's a big one. Gosh, this marker is not... Maybe this one will work better. Yeah. Suffering's a big one. Um, I talked about my friend last night. I think I mentioned him. Um, The one that sent me the picture of the guy with the prosthetic leg. Um, He's a preacher's kid. His his dad died um, and hasn't been to the church since. Um, I successfully got him to listen to one of my sermons that I preached in Ozark's Chapel several years ago. Um, I had tweeted something. We had a student who died tragically in a car accident several years ago. Um, and it happened on a, uh, what, what day was it? It was like a Thursday or a Friday, and I was going to preach the next Tuesday in chapel. And I, I had a, a personal relationship with this kid, wonderful kid. It's just an awful circumstance. And so I had tweeted some things about Christian hope leading up to that sermon. And he, he started making fun of me because he didn't know the situation. And so I, wasn't, I tried to be gentle with my response. But he didn't know the situation. He started mocking me. And I said, listen, I get where you're at. I get, can you just do me this one favor? Can you listen to this sermon that I preach in Ozark's Chapel this coming week? And he agreed. He listened to the sermon um, and sent me a message afterward complimenting me on the sermon, said that was the first time he'd been in church since his dad died. He called that being in church, listening to a podcast. Um, and then he sent me another message asking for some books to read written by Christian authors because he was, he was tired of just reading atheist authors because they're boring. Um, and so, and they are, by the way. And, and so was I, does that story end with me baptizing him into the name of Jesus? No, unfortunately it doesn't. He's still a work in progress. But you know what we did? We saved the relationship. Um, and we continued the relationship because I just tried to listen to where he was at. And I tried to acknowledge his suffering and at the same time, uh, you know, explain to him how the Christian story actually deals with the issue of suffering. It doesn't run away from it. It actually deals with it. I, I would say another, another issue, unfortunately, is politics. Um, and, and you probably, my suspicion is that being students at the university, you kind of see this firsthand. There is an association of a certain type of religious believer with a certain type of politics, and that is repulsive to a certain kind of unbeliever, okay? Um, And I I can't tell you the number of atheists that I've dealt with through the years, that when you look at their profile on social media, their profile on social media will list four things. I mean, it's crazy how consistent this is. It'll mention that they're an atheist. They love to declare that they're atheists. It'll talk glowingly about science, Okay, maybe that's another topic that we should put up here is science. 
science becomes the surrogate for God. Thirdly, it'll mention LGBTQ. Usually there will be a rainbow somewhere in the profile. And then fourthly, they'll talk about in their profile how much they hate Trump. Those four things. And so I look at that, I'm like, oh, so this, this task that I'm taking part in, it's not as simple as, hey, let me give you three reasons why you need to intellectually accept that God exists. Like, no, there's a lot of other layers of stuff that I got to get through before we can have that conversation. I'm trying to give you a picture of how hard this is. Okay, I want you to appreciate how difficult this is and the, and the fact that you got to listen and you also have to be patient because this takes time. And you also have to be willing at times to take a little bit of abuse. Don't take it personally. I don't take it personally. Of course, I have kind of thick skin anyway. Um, I like the argument. I like the abuse because it means that we're, have, we're, we're getting down to something real. Um, don't take it personally. Instead, see that as a part of the process. It's a part of the process of, of building the relationship, putting yourself in a position to continue that dialogue rather than responding with equal or greater hostility. Um, so that's the first thing is listen to the reasons beyond the reason. Let me, let me move on quickly to the second thing. Um, second thing's maybe just as, if not more important, Doing apologetics is not just about giving answers. Matter of fact, I would say it's secondarily about giving answers. Good apologetics is, that, is really about asking good, excuse me, asking good questions. Um, it's how Jesus practiced apologetics, actually. When, when Jesus was challenged on this question of who is my neighbor, how did Jesus respond? Jesus responded by telling a story. Um, when Jesus was hemmed in by the Pharisees on some theological issue or another, how did Jesus respond? Jesus responded by turning it around and asking them a question in, re in response. Asking good questions is a brilliant approach to engaging people with the gospel. Here's some good questions to ask. Some good questions to ask would be something like, what makes you say that? Why do you say that? So um, when, when somebody says to you, oh, Christians, they're just all so judgmental. Oh, okay. Why, why do you believe that? What makes you say that? Talk to, and what you're doing there is you're, you're probing a little bit deeper. You're, you're forcing them to explain the assertion that they've just made. I'm not interested in assertions. I'm interested in arguments. You understand the difference, right? An assertion is just something you say. An argument is an assertion plus evidence. And so I want the skeptic to actually give an argument. I don't want them to make an assertion. Anybody can make an assertion. I want them to give an argument. What makes you say that? What, what, what in your experience tells you that that's true? Explain it to me. So it's kind of a roundabout way of, of turning the tables a little bit. I don't always have to be on the defense. I could actually encourage them to give their reasons, to give their arguments for the position that they have. Or here, here's another one that I hear all the time. Christians, they, you know, religious people, they just believe anything on blind faith. Really? What makes, what makes you say that? Can you define for me what you think faith is? I'd, I'd like to hear that. 
And, and all of a sudden now, instead of what could be an argument that goes like this, now they're forced to take a step back from the brink, so to speak, and actually engage you in a, like a normal human conversation. <laughs> like, well, this is why I say this. This is my experience. This is what I've seen, or this is what a Christian said to me one time. Oh, so that's what a Christian said to you one time. Would you mind if I actually shared with you what I believe about faith? Because what I believe about faith might be a little bit different than what you've heard from other Christians. Now we're having a civil conversation. Because I just asked the question, I asked them to explain, why do you say that? What makes you say that? Um, or here's another one. Christians just hate gay people. Oh, man. I'm sorry to hear you say that. What, what in your experience leads you to say that? And they might tell you a story, a painful story. And you know what you have an opportunity to do now? You have an opportunity to apologize. I'm sorry that, that you had that experience. And I'm sorry that Christians have sometimes acted that way towards gay people. Can I, can I tell you, at least from my perspective, how Christians should engage gay people? Now we're able to actually have a conversation because I asked that follow-up question. Instead of in a confrontational way, oh, no, you're wrong. What I, like, no, I actually forced them to give some sort of explanation. Here's another, here's another question. Um, I, I, I love asking the question, this question, especially of atheists. It drives them crazy. Can you please tell me what you believe? I'm curious. Pretend I'm a seeker and I'm seeking atheism. Make your case to me. Tell me what you believe. Because I don't think in any conversation one side should always be on the offensive and the other side should always be on the def defensive. I think if you're going to attack my faith, you have some sort of moral obligation to explain to me what it is exactly that you believe. And it's just a nice conversation. It's a nice conversation. I'm curious, as an because not every atheist believes the same things, just like not every Christian believes exactly the same things. Tell me from your perspective, like, what do you believe about morality? What do you believe about right or wrong? What do you believe about a meaningful life? What does that look like? Or tell me why you don't believe in God. You ask me to tell you why I believe in God. I'm curious. You tell because most people believe in God. You're kind of the oddball here in this conversation. You tell me why you don't believe in God. Give me your reasons. Um, so I like, to, I like to ask that question. Um, here's another question <laughs> that I like. Uh, what do you think I'm going to say? Oh, I love this question. Here, here's why I love this question. If you wield this question properly, you can get a skeptic to have an entire conversation just with themselves. Um, so a person will ask me, let, let's just keep it simple. Why do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? What do you think I'm going to say to that? And then they'll give all these arguments that they, that they hear Christians have made. Oh, that's interesting. So what do you think the flaws in those arguments are? So they'll give what they think the flaws in those arguments are. Do you think that there might be, of any of those things that you said, do you think that any of those might actually be a decent argument, or are they all equally bad arguments? What I'm doing is I'm actually engaging in a, in a dialogue, not, not asserting anything. I'm just leading them along to, um, to, to kind of answer these questions on their own, and hopefully in the process, what I can do is expose the fact that the questions aren't necessarily good questions. That there are flaws in the assumptions that he's making. That's what I want them to see. Really what I want them to see at the end of the day is all of the assumptions that they're making, some, some of these assumptions have major flaws in them. 
And those flaws can be exposed by asking the right questions. Here's the last question. Um, I just like asking the question, are you sure? How sure are you? Because this question has been asked of me by atheists. How sure are you that Jesus is the Lord? How sure are you that he's not? Um, what I want to do, this is what I call it. I call it putting pebbles in shoes. Okay? I want to put pebbles in shoes. Um, you know how you could just get a tiny little pebble in your shoe? Tiny little pebble. And that's all it takes to make your whole day uncomfortable. And so what I want to do with an unbeliever is I want them to become uncomfortable with their unbelief. It's not my job to convert anyone. What I want to do is I want to create an environment and an atmosphere where the obstacles for belief are removed, where the excuses for unbelief are removed. And I just want to make them uncomfortable, uncomfortable with their unbelief. Okay? Not in a hostile way, not even in an aggressive way. I just want to put little pebbles in their shoe. Are you sure? How sure are you? So there's a lot of people that disagree with you. Do you, do you re, are you really convinced that you have good reasons to not believe in God? I just want to put that shadow of a doubt in their mind. Okay? So you don't, here's the point. Come back to me if you've tuned me out. The point is, Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer. Sometimes the best answer that you can give is a good question. Just ask good questions. It'll also save you from getting in a knockdown, dragout fight. Okay. Um, in in argument and debate, I think there's a world of difference between boxing and judo. Do you understand the difference between boxing and judo? Boxing, you're just trading blows. Okay. It's strength on strength. You're just trading punches. Okay. Um, with judo, what you do, though, is you try to use your opponent's strength against him or her. So you try to redirect their strikes in such a way that you actually use their aggressiveness against them. And that's when I'm, when I'm in an argument or a debate, I much rather would use a judo approach, use their aggressiveness against them by reversing the questions, by asking good questions. All right. Um, here's the third thing. Agree until you have to disagree. Agree until you have to disagree. You don't have to argue every main point. This, this is a, a larger discussion that I like to have in my apologetics class, but what I usually do like on the first day of class is I draw a, bolt, a, a target up on the board. Some of you have had me at CIY. I do this at CIYs too. I draw a target up on the board, and I'll just ask my class the question, if this target represents all of your beliefs, all your beliefs are on the target, what are your bullseye beliefs? So what's at the very center of the target? These are the most important beliefs that you have. If these beliefs change, it's like the resurrection, right? If the resurrection changes, my entire life changes as a result. These are bullseye beliefs. Now, what skeptics usually do, though, is they usually nibble around the edges of your belief system. They'll ask you questions like about dinosaurs and garbage like that. I hate dinosaur questions, okay? I'm just going to tell you that. I'm sorry if you're interested in dinosaurs and love dinosaurs. God bless you. I just hate, like, where are dinosaurs in the Bible? I don't care, okay? I just don't. I don't care. I, 
I don't think that when we die, we're going to be greeted at the pearly gates by Peter with a multiple choice question. And one of the questions on the test is going to be, hey, tell me what you believe about dinosaurs. And if you answer the wrong way, a trap door opens and you go down to hell. I don't think that's how God works, okay? It's just, to me, it's just not important. Dinosaurs are like out here somewhere, okay? So I'm not going to have a debate with an unbeliever about dinosaurs. I'm just not. But I will talk to you, and I'll talk to you passionately about stuff that matters, okay? I will talk to you about things like the resurrection. Does God exist? Why does it make sense to say that Jesus is Lord? I'll talk to you about those sorts of things. Um, So what that means is, I'm going to agree with a skeptic until I absolutely have to disagree with them. And that that throws them off. Like when I refuse to debate things like politics. Like, I don't... I don't care, man. Like, I get it. You hate Trump. Congratulations. That's not, like, that's not what I'm all about. Like, I'm not all about arguing and debating politics, you know? And it it, kind of surprises them because what they're expecting is they're expecting a, a, a conservative Christian to dig in his heels and to fight for every square inch of the battleground. I don't care. I'm not interested in fighting that fight. I'll agree with you until I have to disagree with you. Christians hate homosexuals. Oh, man, you know what? You're right. Not so much about Christians hating homosexuals, but you're right. There have been occasions where Christians have treated homosexuals poorly. I'm going to agree with you on that. We're on the same team on that, okay? Now, you and I might disagree about sexual ethics, but what I'm going to agree with you on is I'm going to agree that Christians could do a better job loving people who are same-sex attracted. They don't know how to handle that. (laughs) <laughs> they don't know how to handle a Christian who doesn't want to fight with them on every little thing, okay? Um, and what you've done in the process is you've earned goodwill. They're willing to have a more serious conversation with you because they know that you're just not interested in fighting over every little thing, okay? So I'm going to agree until I have to disagree. Um, all right, here's the fourth thing. The fourth thing is my tablet not waking up. There we go. Okay. Um, (laughs) yeah I hope I don't offend you with this Um, be different but don't be weird now there is we should be different one of my very favorite passages of Scripture is in 1 Peter 2. I love 1 Peter. It's really one of my favorite books of the New Testament. In 1 Peter 2, he says, you are aliens and strangers in this world. You know what that means? It means you're different. It means you stick out. If you're a Christian on the campus of Oklahoma State University, you should stick out. I'm sorry. You should be different. There should be something about you that people look at and say, that kid, don't know what it is, but there's something about that kid, he's just different. Okay? So we should stick out. But we shouldn't be weird. <laughs> and here's what I mean by weird. Now, it's okay to be quirky. Okay? Uh, it's okay to be eccentric. I'm eccentric in my own way. But why, what I mean here by don't be weird is we need to be able to and willing to speak the language of this culture. Okay? It doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything that this culture is saying, but we need to at least be able to speak the language. 
we need to be able to engage ideas um, in, in ways that they can understand. And, and that means that we build bridges, right? We build bridges between the gospel and the culture. That's what Christians are called to do in this world. So be different, be distinct, be holy, but don't be weird. <laughs> um, learn to speak the language of the world around you, not for the sake of accommodating that world, but for the sake of showing the world a better way. Here's the next point. Um, be a friend. Be a friend. Um, and some of this is going to connect back to this up here. Um, but I, I, I love talking about this, especially to high school students, but I think it applies just as well to college students. One of the things that I always tell high school students is, if you have a friend in your high school, especially if you're living in a place like Oklahoma, okay, if you have a friend in your high school who says, you know what, I'm atheist, God's dumb, God's stupid, guess what? That kid, she's not more intelligent than you are. It's not like she's done her research and she's discovered this truth that all Christians are just deluded and wrong. That's not what's happened at all. What's happening nine times out of ten is that's a person desperately seeking attention. They want to be known as the atheist. They want to be known as the person that thinks that God is dumb or whatever. They are actually looking for a fight. You shouldn't give them that fight. Instead, what they really need is to be loved. What they really need is a good friend. Okay, And you're only going to make um, progress with that person, reaching them with the gospel, if you endeavor to be a friend first. You don't want to be a debate partner first. You want to be a friend first. Because what they're looking for is an argument, like I said. They, they want Christians to yell at them. Okay, They want to be surrounded at the lunch table in the cafeteria and have people telling them how wrong they are. Uh, this isn't always the case, okay? It's not always the case, but it is often the case. And so you have an opportunity in that situation not to start an argument with them, but instead to try to be a good friend to them so that later on you can have a, a more appropriate conversation. Um, here's, here's the next thing. Um, I have two more things. Use your brain. God gave you a brain for a reason. Use it. Um, one of my favorite passages of scripture is in 2 Corinthians 10, where Paul tells us to th take every thought captive. Um, and basically what that means to take every thought captive is to refuse to passively go through life without thinking about it. <laughs> um, think about your life. Think about the world that you live in. Think about the ideas that are passed around as truth. Take all those thoughts captive and bring them into submission to Christ. Okay, What Paul is calling you to here is he's calling you to the life of Christian thought. To be a Christian is to think Christianly, to think well. That's one of the things that's involved in following Jesus, to think Christianly. And so use your brain. Think through. I'll give you another passage of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20, Paul says, 
that the wisdom of this world is foolishness. The, conven- the things that are passed off as conventional wisdom in this world are foolishness. So whenever you find yourself go, just simply going with the flow of where the culture is at, whenever you find yourself just agreeing with all of the assumptions and proclamations of this culture, whenever you find yourself in that current, be careful. Because Paul warns us, so much of that conventional wisdom, you know what? It's ultimately, it's foolish. It's foolish. And so the only way, guys, that you're going to go against the flow of culture, actually two things. You need two things if you're going to go against the flow of culture. The first thing that you're going to need is you're going to need to think. You're going to need to be able to actually use your brain, ask good questions. You're going to need to think. The second thing that you're going to need is you're going to need courage. You're going to need the courage of your convictions when everybody is going this way to actually stand up and say, I don't know, I'm not so sure. I think that maybe, maybe this is foolishness, masquerading as wisdom. You're going to need to use your brain. You're going to need some courage. Here's the last thing. Remember the goal. The goal of all of this is not to win arguments. The goal is actually to show people their savior, to lead people towards healing. That's the goal. Um, If I have to take some debate losses along the way, so be it. That's okay. Because my goal isn't just to win debates. I would love if that was the goal because there's this carnal side of me, there's this fleshy side of me that would love just to basically own the atheists, okay? Um, That's not what Jesus has called us to. Jesus has called us to make disciples. And so we always need to remember that goal when we're talking to a person who has rejected God. Um, Okay, that's all I wanted to say about that. I don't know what our time parameters are, but um, I can stick around and answer some questions if, if we'd like. How much time do we have? Let's do, let's do 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Okay, 10 minutes. Anybody have any questions, comments, feedback, anything at all? Of course, 10 minutes, that would probably be like one question, uh, the way I talk. But anybody? I've got one. Mm-hmm. I get the question a lot, um, where did God come? Yeah, yeah, that, that question, um, it's out there. Um, probably probably the, the, the biggest, not that you care about this, but the biggest advocate of that question or a person that made that question famous in recent years is a guy named Richard Dawkins, um, and he thinks he's being clever when he says it. Um, God didn't come from anywhere. Uh, that's the answer, because the definition of God is such that God has no beginning or end. Um, so when people ask that question, they're actually making what's called a category mistake. Um, a category mistake is when you apply a question illegitimately to a topic or an issue where that question is irrelevant. Um, so now that, that answer won't always satisfy everyone, but I don't know what to tell you. You just, you just don't have a proper definition of God. If you think that God is something that can have a beginning or that something could create God, well, you just need to 
have your definition of God recalibrated. I, so he, Richard Dawkins thinks that he's saying something clever there, but all he's demonstrating is his ignorance about the, just the definition of what God is. Any other questions? Yeah. What do you do when somebody turns, especially the second one against you, especially when you're talking about like putting pebbles in your shoes? Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking this morning in my group, and one of the people was asking about, what if somebody turns around what I'm doing on mm-hmm. me? Yeah. Like, how do we react to that? Um, you know what? It's okay to say, dang, that's a good question. I don't know. It's okay. I mean, our faith shouldn't be fragile enough that all it takes is one clever question from a skeptic to to actually shatter it in a million pieces. I fear that a lot of Christians, especially Christian young people, sorry, have that kind of faith. And and it's no fault of your own. You've, You've kind of grown up, like me, you grow up in an environment where faith was just assumed, right? Which is... It's not a bad thing. That, again, that, that's my own experience. But you have to, in order for anything to become strong, it has to go through a season of testing and trial. And yet, you know, that's how we become stronger emotionally, physically, spiritually. Um, so what I worry about a lot of times, and that's why I love ministries like this ministry, because so many students, they'll go away to college, especially, and they will have rocks thrown at the window of their faith. And their faith is much like a window. It doesn't have a lot of flexibility to it. It doesn't have a lot of give to it. So somebody, somebody aims a rock perfectly at that window, it could shatter in a million pieces. And so what I like to remind students of is, first of all, the nature of faith is you're always going to be asking questions. I'm sorry if that's not comforting to you, but it's the reality, okay? If you are following Jesus faithfully, you will never run out of questions to ponder. And that's okay. It's also okay to, to acknowledge the fact that you're not God with all of the answers to all of life's questions. And so I can't tell you the number of times that I've told atheists, you know what, that's a good question. Honestly, that question isn't super important to me, but it's a good question. I don't have, I don't have a for sure answer to that question. Um, and they're usually surprised when a Christian acknowledges that because, again, they're used to Christians fighting them on every little thing. Um, there's this guy. I've interacted with him on Twitter. He's actually a decent guy, but he's, he's an atheist who has a YouTube channel. He goes onto university campuses, and he tries to find Christians on university campuses. He calls himself the, uh, the street epistemologist or something like that. Um, but he, he goes, have you seen any of his videos, Alec? No, it just sounds funny. Okay. Um, <laughs> but he goes, he goes onto college campuses, finds Christians, and he tries to shatter their faith by introducing uncertainty to their faith. Um, and he'll ask him questions like, what percentage are you for sure that God exists? Are you 50% sure? Are you 60% sure? And what he's trying to do there is he's trying to communicate to these students that if they're not 100% sure that God exists, then they're probably just atheists. They don't realize it yet, which I think is bunk. That's just stupid, okay? God's existence doesn't depend on how I feel from one day to the next. 
God's existence doesn't depend on the level of certitude that I have this moment versus another moment. God's existence doesn't depend on me at all, okay? It's, so he's starting with a flawed assumption. His flawed assumption is that unless you're absolutely certain, then you actually don't have faith, which I think, again, is stupid. Here's, here's the way I like to illustrate this, um, and we might have to end it with this. Um, so uh, I will be married 20 years this, this summer, okay? And when um, I met my wife in college, uh, and we actually met as freshmen. She didn't care for me. Um, sometimes as a guy, you are cursed by the company that you keep. And so she really didn't like my friends, okay? And she lumped me together with my friends. Now, she has since come to love and adore my friends, maybe even more than she adores me at times. Um, but at the time, as freshmen, she thought we were all obnoxious because we were. Um, so she didn't, she didn't care for me at all. I wore her down, though. And by the end of our junior year, she finally agreed to go on a date with me. Um, and so, uh, so we ended up getting married right after our senior year, I guess. Um, but so here's the thing. If you, think about, if you think about the process involved of going from dating to engagement to being married, okay, no one, at least in our culture, now there are some cultures that are an exception to this, but no one in our culture goes into marriage completely blind. You, in other words, you've gotten to know the person, right? Um, even in cultures that have arranged marriages, there's usually a period of time where you're getting to know the person. Um, and, and so you don't go into marriage blind. However, on the day that you get married and you say, I do, and she says, I do, the dirty little secret is you don't necessarily know everything that you're saying I do too. That's why when I perform a wedding, I never have them say I do. I have them say I will. Because getting married is a process of discovery. Every day you get to know each other better and deeper. You get to know yourself. That's what a lot of people don't realize about marriage. I never learned as much about myself until after I got married. So this notion that I got to discover who I am and then I'll get married, that's bunk too. Because you actually discover much more about yourself within the context of that marriage, at least I have. And so every day from the, point, from the moment that you get married, it's a process of discovery. You learn more about this person as you go through the, the twists and turns of life. Now, what in the world does this have to do with faith? Um, actually, quite a bit. Do you know anybody, I'm sure you do, do you know anybody who has said something along these lines? I'll get married eventually, but there's several things that have to happen first. First of all, I have to, I have to, I have to get my own life, my own career, my own house. I have, I have all these checklists that I have to accomplish myself before I'll get married. You know anybody like that? Or they'll say something like this. I'll get married to this person, but only once I really get to know this person really well will we get married. How many of those people actually end up getting married? A shockingly low number, right? Because you're never going to feel like you're completely ready yet. 
You're never going to feel like you know that person well enough to actually get married. And some people say the same thing about God. I'll only believe in God once I can have this question answered, this question. I, once I have everything kind of lined up, once I know all of these things with, with a high degree of certainty, then and maybe then I'll choose to believe in God. Or how about this? Sometimes I hear people say this. I'll believe in God when I'm older. Right now, I want to focus on me. I want to focus on having a good time. I want to do all these things. And then maybe when I'm old and gray, then maybe I'll choose, I'll deal with this whole God thing. Tragically, how many of those people actually make the decision to follow Jesus? Not nearly as many as you'd think. Um, But here's the thing. When you do choose to believe in Jesus... You're not entering into it blindly. You've had, remember, we've talked about external confirmation, internal confirmation. Like, there are good reasons to believe, right? You're not entering into it blindly. But at the same time, you're also entering into this life of discovery where every day if you're living with Jesus, you're hopefully, you're going to discover new things. You're going to grow in new ways. You're going you're gonna to discover things about God that you never even thought about before. You're going to have questions introduced to you that you never even considered before. And what I want you to see is, I want you to see that as a good thing, not as a bad thing. That's, that's what following Jesus is all about. It's, it's, it's this lifelong discovery of who you are and who God is and, and just navigating this relationship. All right, that's all the time that I have. I appreciate all of you. Appreciate being here, and uh, I'll sign off there.